Yeah, um, that's a that's a great question. And uh, hepatic lipidosis is something that we deal with quite frequently. Um, however, I must admit we're seeing less cases now, and I wonder if it is because um, veterinarians are better at handling those cases. Sorry for saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and this is the Purr Podcast. And sadly, this week I'm all alone, but that will be compensated by the amazing guests that we have. So Dr. Susan couldn't make it. Uh, she says hello to you all, dear listeners, and we're very happy that you're downloading the podcast and listening to us. And like I said, we have a great guest, and this is the famous Dr. Dave Tweet. Hello, Dave. Hi there. How are you today? I am doing great, Dave, and I'm really excited to, to talk to you for two reasons. One, um, we have met many times in my career, during my career, in various places. Uh, two, uh, we just met at a conference that we're going to talk about. And uh, and you are kind of a, uh, a uh, yeah, what shall I say, one of my heroes of internal <laughs> medicine. So uh, so I'm very okay. flattered to have you on, on this call. So can you give a little bit of background uh, to our audience? Most of the people will know you, but... Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I grew up in Iowa on a farm and went to vet school and uh, at Iowa State University. Um, after I finished up there, I did an internship and a residency at the Animal Medical Center, which is this very large teaching hospital in New York City. And I was there for a few years after that. Decided at that point in time, I couldn't live in New York anymore. And uh, there was a position at Colorado State University. And so I came out here and have been at uh, Colorado um, ever since then. I, you know, I guess my areas of interest uh, are uh, GI, liver, pancreatic disease. But one of my real big interests is also endoscopy. And um, I was fortunate to get in on the ground level uh, with a great mentor of mine teaching uh, endoscopy in veterinary medicine. I think he was one of the first people to do that, Jerry Johnson. And so it's just carried over from there. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And you know, I'm a big uh, endoscopy fan too. And I, I think endoscopy is one of those... Uh, you know, of those fields within veterinary medicine that both is internal medicine and surgery. So you have internal medicine people that do it, you have surgeons that do it, and there's a lot of crosstalk between the two. So uh, I, I, I truly love that. And we definitely are going to spend some time uh, talking about endoscopy. Uh, just uh, as an explanation to you, Dave, uh, we're talking cats here. So the D word cannot be named except for you can say canine, you can say, but not the D. So that's the oh. little rule that we have. And okay. if, you, if you do, you owe us a glass of wine. So uh, okay. <laughs> and, uh, just just for your knowledge, but no. But so we're talking cats here. And, uh, and so um, obviously before you started getting into 
in, uh, into endoscopy, you did a lot of internal medicine and, and you are well known because of your knowledge of liver disease and GI disease, which obviously both are issues in feline medicine. Absolutely. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, some people say that it's normal for a cat to vomit, but I don't believe that at all. And there's always something underlying going on. And I think over the years, we've learned a lot about feline gastroenterology. And um, I think we've become very successful in managing many cats that have gastrointestinal disease uh, medically. Um, I think, you know, diet is a big reason for many of our cats that have gastrointestinal problems. Um, they certainly can get um, inflammatory bowel disease, which certainly could be diet related. It could be uh, bacteria. It could be immune. Um, and, you know, one of the big things that we do see quite commonly in cats as compared to the canine is gastrointestinal lymphoma. And well so that's, done, by the way. Well done. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so uh, that is something that we, uh, you know, are uh, uh, always looking at, and our management is a little bit different in that regard. But I think that uh, that is not gloom and doom because many cats, even with uh, gastrointestinal lymphoma, do well for many, many years on appropriate medication. Yeah, and it's a good point. Uh, I, I play. This is completely on the sideline, but I play tennis, and there is a lady in my uh, tennis group uh, that had a cat uh, with uh, gastric lymphoma. So, uh, and and it, it, you know, when they get the results, it's often kind of a, seen as a death sentence. But while it's not, you know, it's it it did. The, I always say the differentiation between uh, gastrointestinal lymphoma in the cat and chronic gastric enteritis or uh, is, is so difficult to discern uh, sometimes. Yeah, very definitely. And, you know, we utilize uh, special uh, testing as, as far as uh, PAR, which is uh, mm -hmm. PCR for uh, uh, receptor rearrangement and immunohistochemical staining, uh, clinical course. And, you know, we put all those things together to decide how we're best going to manage those those cases. And many of them do very well for prolonged periods of time. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And so, what is the latest and the greatest in uh, in treatment? Then, so what what is your does your treatment protocol look for these cases like? Well, um, there are different protocols that uh, people use. I think one of the uh, therapies that I've used over the years has been chlorambucil and mm -hmm. prednisolone uh, given orally. I think now we're looking at maybe um, progressing to more metered squared dosages rather than the regular doses. Um, Chlorambucil tends to be fairly expensive, mm. but um, uh, I think that there are protocols out there that make it uh, more reasonable as far as uh, treating cases. Yeah, and then and going back to the liver, uh... Obviously, there's lots of liver diseases in cats too, uh, and 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 I, I think that when I met you for the first time, uh, you were you were experimenting with a lot of uh, of 
of things at Colorado. Um, and but you also that's where I think your love for endoscopy started. So can you give a little bit of background there? Yeah. So, uh, you know, my big interest in um, endoscopy, uh, not only GI endoscopy, but also laparoscopy. And uh, way back when, you know, one of the things that we knew is that uh, cats had various types of liver disease, and we wanted to try to figure out what type of disease do they have. And certainly that will determine how we're going to treat those patients. And so, um, you know, we wanted to develop a way of getting good biopsies that were minimally invasive. Uh, where you're not opening the cat up from stem to stern to take uh, pieces of liver tissue to figure out exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so laparoscopy, which essentially is using a rigid endoscope where you can visualize and you can take biopsies and watch for complications and so forth, have been uh, paramount in understanding liver disease in cats. And you know, one of the things that we also do quite frequently is that with liver disease in cats, many of them have uh, cholangitis and cholangiohepatitis. Um, and oftentimes uh, we will determine that many of these are associated with bacteria. And one of the things that we can do laparoscopically is also a cholecystocentesis mm -hmm. to collect uh, bile for analysis and culture as well. Yeah, so those are two really good points. So, so crit, uh, people that are a little bit more critical would say, hey, but you could do that by ultrasound too. So why are you such a favor of doing this endoscopically? Um, I think the reason that I am is that there are some very large blood vessels that go through the liver and the livers are quite small. And I just think doing ultrasound guided with uh, needles, um, you know, have it, we, we do know the smaller the patient, the greater risk for complications. And so um, this way you can go in, you can get, uh, biopsies, you know you're not going to stick a needle through a big blood vessel, and um, you can collect adequate tissue from multiple lobes. You can do a cholecystocentesis. You can look at the pancreas. You know, we're now finding that many cats that have uh, uh, liver disease also have pancreatic disease, and I think that Cats probably are the major species that I do pancreatic biopsies on. Mm -hmm. And I can do those laparoscopically, and they've been found to be very safe as well. Yeah, a lot of people are afraid of pancreatic biopsies, and I always tell them that, you know, it's not different than any other organ. So just do it when yeah. you need to. Uh, but uh, yeah, endoscopic uh, pancreatic biopsies are so easy to do too. And you, you know, the advantage also is you can see what happens. So uh, you know, and, uh, and, and, and so you very rarely get bleeding. And of course I was studying as a student in, in Utrecht and the professor Rothhauser, you, you know, very well, I know was, yes. was there and he did most of his, uh, biopsies by, for both, uh, smaller D's and for cats, uh, uh, through ultrasound, but we did have some situations that, 
those cases need to either be rushed into ICU or rushed into uh, to the the surgery suite because they were bleeding afterwards that they couldn't control. Uh, so I think this this endoscopy method is a very elegant method while you can see around. And then I think the other thing is that you know you see exactly so you can do a really good uh, review of all the lobes and if there is something abnormal you can precisely biopsy there and i think with ultrasound that limitation is more limited i mean you can see most things but it's not all and sometimes there's air and you know there's lots of reasons especially in the smaller animals how why it's more difficult to do so right you know and i might just uh put a pitch in if anyone is interested in doing that and they are an all feline practice that uh what we're using now are pediatric laparoscopic setups and so it's miniaturized um, as compared to what you would do in the canine and um, or most canines and so consequently um, uh, the biopsy instruments are two and a half millimeters in diameter your scope is about three millimeters in diameter and the so the incision size is tiny and you can get really good tissues and your patient can be up and back to where they were before the biopsy uh, within less than 24 hours. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I used to, I started using those pa pediatric three millimeter ports, et cetera, for uh, ferrets. So yeah. I had a lot of problems with these big instruments in ferrets and those three millimeters works really well. And then in cats, obviously too because you don't need a a five millimeter instrument to do things in the cat so the, yeah you're completely right that there are instruments right now uh, by various companies that you can buy that are specifically designated for smaller animals yeah absolutely yeah yeah that makes sense so so would you worry for instance if you if you want to do a liver biopsy in a cat that has for instance hepatic lipidosis and and you're worried about the anesthesia would you then prefer to do it by uh, endoscopy or would you then do it try to do it in in the the cat uh, under mild sedation through ultrasound yeah um that's a that's a great question and uh hepatic lipidosis is something that we deal with quite frequently um however I must admit we're seeing less cases now, and I wonder if it is because um, veterinarians are better at handling those cases. Um, mm -hmm. I think hepatic lipidosis, uh, you know, those cats basically are anorectic. Um, they lose weight. They become ictric and their um, liver on ultrasound becomes very uh, hyperechoic and you know it that's pretty characteristic of what we see and uh many cases i think we might just do a fine needle aspirate to help support that that is what we're we think we're dealing with i've been yeah. um you know, I've had some cases that have had uh, lymphoma in the liver and so forth that uh, presented very similarly. So, um, you know, I, I think that would be what we would probably do. We do know that some of these cats that have hepatic lipidosis in particular 
maybe up to 50% of them can have coagulopathies mm. and, you know, they're ictric and so forth. And so I generally will pre-treat these cats for a day or so with vitamin K1. Okay. Um, um, I think that would be advisable to do and just be prepared um, that they may have some prolonged bleeding. Uh, and so I, again, I watch them very, very closely, but um, just being aware of that and doing uh, careful detail um, in my experience, it hasn't been a major problem as far as excessive bleeding or bleeding out. And and if you get a case like that, what, what is your current therapy for a cat with severe hepatic lipidosis? Well, my therapy, um, first off, is if I have a cat that has severe hepatic lipidosis, I always look for underlying disease. Mm -hmm. And I'm... Uh, Reminded of a case that one of my residents had of a typical, you know, the, the typical hepatic lipidosis cat, and it had a little bit of abdominal effusion, and I just thought that was kind of weird, and um, but we couldn't find anything else going on. There was not enough fluid that we could aspirate. Everything else in the abdominal cavity looked normal, and so we did put in a feeding tube in this cat and treated it, which I'll tell you what I normally do with these cats. And this cat just didn't do well and was finally euthanized, um, I think, a month and a half later and had GI lymphoma. Yeah. And that was probably the, the primary underlying etiology. So mm. for the idiopathic ones where I can't find an underlying etiology. And I do think that this syndrome does still occur. Uh, those cats, uh, we put in a feeding tube. Uh, we will usually use an esophageal feeding tube. I love to put them in endoscopically into the stomach, but that's expensive for the client and you can't have complications if you don't do it right. Whereas an esophageal feeding tube, there are a number of those out there that can be easily done by any practitioner. Mm -hmm. And I will uh, get, you know, so my primary therapy is number one, correcting electrolytes, mm -hmm. acid base, hydration, potassium levels, and so forth. Uh, getting adequate nutrition in the cats. And what I normally do is calculate out their ideal, um, their caloric requirements for their ideal body weight. And I usually start out with maybe the first day with multiple feedings, four or five feedings of uh, uh, giving them maybe 25% of their caloric needs. And then maybe the next day working up a little bit higher, maybe 35, 40%, maybe 50%. So then usually within five days or so, one can get up to their actual caloric needs through the feeding tube. I think there are several complications that can occur, one of which is there is this refeeding syndrome where uh, the body's not used to getting a lot of uh, carbohydrates and um, insulin levels go up and potassium levels go down. And uh, so there are a lot of changes in that regard. I don't see that very frequently, but I think 
just some of these cats that have been anorectic for so long and putting some food into them, their GI tract is just not hepped up for that. So I think you need to start out slow. And then there are, and there's, I think, no ideal diet that has been uh, conventionally proved to be the most ideal diet. You know, we used to say, um, you know, they got liver disease, so you feed them a low protein diet. And we now know cats requirements are so great for protein that I don't restrict protein at all. Um, uh, we used to say no fat because they have a fatty liver, but you know, that's a good source of energy. And so I don't restrict fat. So I use a good balanced uh, uh, diet. There are formulations for uh, that can easily be placed through the tube uh, in feeding these cats. And uh, that's often what I will do. Otherwise, you have to blenderize diets. But um, nutrition is number one. Then there's all this ancillary stuff that people look at as far as other things in the cats you know, like, uh, you know, various things like carnitine, uh, uh, cobalamin, uh, you know, certainly potassium supplementation. I do believe that many of these cats do have cobalamin deficiency, and I will supplement them with cobalamin. I normally always measure their B12 or cobalamin levels, mm -hmm. but um, I will supplement them if I have financial constraints and can't do it, um, I will routinely anyway. Yeah. And um, then there are a lot of other things that people use, antioxidants and so forth. And we just don't have a lot of good studies uh, finding that one thing is better than the other. Yeah, it's it's good that you say that the fats recognize it earlier, treat it earlier, so you don't get the disaster cases that we used to get of these cats that were total crashing uh, because their liver was so fat, and then you know with the with often death uh, as as the end result. So that's that's right. good to hear. That's good to hear. Although I do think that uh, you know. Uh, if I look at cats today, that most of the cats, so over 60, 70% are overweight. So, and that's always a risk factor within these cats. When you are overweight and you have a fatty liver and then you stop eating, uh, that can make things quite uh, a lot worse. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so, interesting in my experience, though, that once a client goes through this treating their cat, and we did a little study for the average tube time. And I think it was like 28 days, you know, yeah. before we pulled the tube. And I only pull the tube once the cat is eating and taking in adequate calories. And they can eat around their tube. But um, the clients don't let their cats get fat again. <laughs> it's, it's probably because they spend so much money uh, treating their cat that they're not yes. going, they're not going to do that. Yes, I bet, because it probably is really expensive to have your cat treated for uh, hepatic lipidosis with ICU and everything and the feeding tube, et cetera. You're a couple yeah, of thousand yeah. dollars later. And uh, I would not, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, obesity is a big problem in pets in general, especially yeah. with, with COVID. So we need to do something about it. But yeah, it's, it's a good point. Uh, if you've seen once what happened, you probably don't do that again. Uh, hey, I have one more question before we have to finalize this uh, this podcast. Normally, it goes really fast, so uh, just like today. Um, do you have any cats yourself? I do have. I have two cats. All right. And then the next question is, 
most of the time veterinarians especially veterinarians like you and me have cats and dogs because there is something wrong with them uh, do they have anything wrong with them or are they completely healthy uh they are pretty darn healthy the one cat that uh we have stetson that we've had for like uh he's i think 10 or 11 now we got him he was a stray cat we got him from the shelter yeah uh we have uh one of our other cats had passed away and there was uh, through another veterinarian um she was trying to foster uh she needed someone to foster this cat and the owner um had um uh, uh cognitive problems and couldn't take care of the cat so uh we've adopted that cat and right now we're in the process of reintroducing the both both cats together they're both older cats and yeah. uh they would just as soon not have another cat around. So we're we're dealing with the cat behavioral aspects. Yes, I can imagine. But you're you're a very clever person. I knew that already. But you're a very clever person not to fall into the trap of these poor little sick animals that are in the hospital and taking those with all the diseases that they bring back to to, to the home. So well done. Oh well, well I can tell you in the past I've had some three legged cats and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> some uh a cat with one eye and you know so yeah 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 we all do that so thank yeah. you so much and we're at the end so this was lovely and i'm so excited that you'll be back uh, in a week with us to talk a little bit more and i have a couple of questions so this is the cliffhanger for people that are listening one where uh, i would love to talk a little bit about the courses that you give in an in endoscopy and where people can get more information uh, what techniques you use and then also we just went to the world veterinary endoscopy congress and i would like to have your you know what you thought of that so we'll do that next week uh, thanks everybody for listening this is the per podcast my name is dr yola kirpenstein you can find more information at perpodcast.net we also have a handle uh, for social media at per podcast uh, where you can follow us and uh, see who is uh, with us uh, in the upcoming week so thank you so much dave for being on the podcast with us it has been a great episode thank you it's my pleasure Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Yola Kirpenstein is a a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. 
Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove screw-bite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page, at per podcast. 